welcome to the Parallax Strange Tractor Roundtable podcast. I'm very pleased that you all took the time for this, I hope will be a very interesting talk. Uh, my co-host is Dennis Wittrock. He's a holacracy coach and uh, an author and an, an integral pioneer. And yeah, I, I will give him the word you know, to introduce the topic and the general theme of our talk. Dennis, yeah. So we uh, welcome and thank you very much. And, and very happy to see all of you joining uh, this, this conversation. Um, and we gave it a tentative title of Outcompeting Game A, uh, New Organization Models for a Game B World. So that's kind of the, the overarching uh, theme, let's say. And I wanted to, to start with a, with a brief thought experiment for also for the viewers, um, which is, goes like this. Uh, so imagine you're the founder of, uh, of, a, of a company. You just founded, a, you, you created a company, you, you got sick of your old job, you, you quit and then you, you build your own thing, right? And so now uh, you have a really cool business idea and things are coming together and uh, at some point you are actually successful and the thing starts growing and with more people uh, coming onto the team. And at some point it really becomes clear to you, um, yeah, you will need some structure there, some, some kind of, hmm, what, management, <laughs> something like that. Um, <laughs> so what do you do? Um, so how would you organize your business? Would you uh, introduce a level of managers? Um, or does it even have to be the, the usual management hierarchy, uh, management hierarchy? So what would you do? And uh, I think that's a, that's a question that many of us are struggling with. So this is the, this is the round table um, that we call a strange attractor. And the strange attractor is a kind of uh, our shorthand for a, a new emerging structure. You can call it metamodern or integral or teal or post-progressive, game B, or whichever label suits you really. And uh, in our conversations, we uh, explore this, this strange attractor from different angles, from different perspectives. In our last round table, we looked at, um, at it from the lens of politics. And in this one, we will look from the perspectives of business and organizations. So to get a sense of what, of what is actually currently being born. Um, so um, in general, I would say we can look at it from three different levels in, the, in this conversation. And can we kind of have an expert for, for each, each of these levels uh, um, to represent that. So you could look at it from a macro level. And that's uh, where I imagine maybe the game, e, game A versus game B conversation uh, plays a role, uh, kind of the, the big picture. Um, then we have a, some kind of a middle level or meso level um, where, you know, the level of organization, organizational theory and, and, and management in general uh, comes into the interview. And uh, on the micro level, how do we actually embody these new principles in concrete organizations? And here I see uh, we have a great practitioner here. So, um, Tom, would you uh, introduce uh, Jim for us? Right. So, Jim Rudd, he's the host of the popular Jim Rudd Show and the former CEO of Network Solutions. Uh, he has been affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute since 2002, serving as a chairman from 2009 through 2012, 
And in conversation with Jordan Hall, he coined the term Game B that now galvanizes the global movement of change makers. Yeah, uh, on thank to you, Tom. Coming. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm very thrilled to have you. I listen to a lot of your stuff on, on, on podcasts, on your podcast, one of my favorites. And we have Thomas Thomason. Um, a, he's a, besides being a friend, he's a seasoned mm -hmm. entrepreneur and business builder. Uh, a recognized leader, developer, and practitioner of self-organizing systems and methods. In 2007, he co-founded Holacracy One LLC to develop a mature Holacracy into what is now the gold standard replacement for conventional management hierarchies. In 2015, he launched Encode.org to further embed self-organization practices in legal capital and social structures. In 2019, Encode launched PowerShift Capital, reinvent sourcing and de deploying capital for purposeful self-organized and power shifted endeavors and in 2020 encode launched powershift people to create a global community of interdependent agents working in purposeful self-organized and power shifted systems that's a that's a mouthful but it's, it's <laughs> great <laughs> yeah welcome tom uh and then last but not least we have marco robledo um joining us from well, Parma, Spain, Parma de Mallorca. Marco is the author of the book, 3D Management, an integral theory for organizations in the vanguard of evolution and advises on how to build more conscious, humane, uh, efficacious and responsible forms of enterprise. He's a professor of business and director of the Master of Business Administration at the University of the Balearics he defines himself as a change agent that helps organizations and individuals in their development towards higher consciousness. Welcome, Marco. Thank you very much. So let's start with a general round of initial questions and I give the word to Tom. Wonderful. Okay, and I, I will focus my, <clears throat> my, my, my first questions to Jim. We just had the conversation a couple of weeks ago where we went a little bit deeper into, uh, into game A and game B, but for those uh, who haven't listened to this or are not familiar with your work, would you briefly explain what you mean with game A, maybe in relationship to the other term you coined, like proto-Bs, and in relationship to, to game A, just to we get a baseline? Okay. Sure. Uh, first, I want to uh, correct the record. You said that Jordan Hall and I coined the term uh, game B. I would say it was actually Thor Muller, who was the first person who uh, actually... Uh, took what was a whiteboard picture and said, let's call the thing game B. So <laughs> Thor Muller gets the credit. Uh, right. With Jordan Hall as the guy who wrote it on the whiteboard, but didn't realize that's what we should call it, right? right. So, so anyway, game A, game A, B. Uh, game A is the status quo, that thing that most of us live in every day. And uh, in my formulation has been the uh, uh, dominant social operating system since about 1700. Uh, that includes, uh, you know, capital, uh, financialized capitalism, uh, growing amounts of democracy, uh, uh, mass media, eventually, etc. Uh, one can argue that the roots of game A go all the way back to the invention of architecture, and uh, there's some merit to that argument. But my sharp thinking, I I'd start with 1700, essentially. Uh, I would uh, suggest that. Uh, uh, we're in stage game A now, meaning that uh, 
exponential growth in a finite world can't go on forever. And finally, we are seeing uh, that wall approaching. And you know, it's important to realize that in 1700, Game A was a great invention, a, a, a huge increase in capacity and human well-being uh, over feudalism, absolute monarchs, etc. And uh, the concept that uh, weak little humans who at that point still didn't have fossil fuels or uh, engines or electricity or any of that stuff were in any danger of overrunning the limits of the earth uh, or even our own cognitive limits uh, would have been considered absurd. So game A spun up from its beginnings in, uh, I'd argue, England and the Netherlands and then spread through uh, the continent and then eventually around the world and continued to gain speed as all the various pieces reinforced each other. Uh, you know, uh, enlightenment thinking plus science plus technology plus financialized capitalism as uh, for the main building blocks uh, delivered miracles in terms of increases of standard of living, increases of population of the world. Uh, you, know, you know, just think of all the inventions we learned in our history books, et cetera. And it kept chugging along, chugging along, chugging along till right after probably World War II was the inflection point with the invention of the atomic bomb. Uh, finally, oh shit, uh, humans are now capable of doing serious damage to the ecosystem uh, and to worldwide civilization and then continue accelerating. And then seems like another inflection point occurred in the seventies with the invention of the microprocessor, uh, taking uh, financial currencies off the gold standard where finance became unconstrained by its own imagination. Uh, uh, mass media really started permeating absolutely every aspect of life first with color TV, uh, which was a fundamental upgrade from the earlier black and white, and then eventually, of course, computer networks, and then uh, in the early double aughts, social media. Uh, and all that has led through a series of exponential curves, which, uh, you know, again, exponentials in a finite world and with finite human capacity can't go on forever. I think what Herb Simon said, uh, the one thing you can say about uh, uh, exponential growth uh, is it won't go on forever. You know, that which must stop eventually will. So the question on this transit, on how it stops is, does it stop abruptly through game A driving over the cliff? Uh, maybe a massive die off of human population, horrible wars, who knows what? Uh, or do we manage a transition to something else, a, uh, a new civilization? And so game B uh, you know, again, it's still a relatively small group of it, but we have audacious uh, visions is that game B uh, should become the social operating system for humanity, for everybody eventually, uh, and that its goal is to take advantage of what game A created, uh, including uh, ideas like holacracy or sociocracy or uh, other uh, non-hierarchical forms, or at least not purely hierarchical forms of management, uh, networks, the idea of membranes and protocols, the things we've learned from uh, biology, uh, et cetera, some of the ideas from cryptocurrency that listeners to my podcast know, I'm a bit of a skeptic on the current instantiations of uh, most of the uh, crypto policies, et cetera. And so the goal is to create a new world uh, that's based first and foremost on honesty and good faith and radical intellectual honesty. Uh, and then uh, is built on sort of four pillars, which are uh, self-organization, network centricity, 
metastability, and what the hell's the fourth one? I don't remember, but uh, it'll, it'll come to me. Uh, and uh, uh, and this uh, this idea, these ideas are, we've done lots of thinking and lots of writing in the areas of finance, operating businesses, operating communities, uh, child early childhood education, K, uh, what should replace K to 12 education, mm-hmm. how to deal with the generator function. So yeah, this is very important. A uh, very important game B idea is at the heart of uh, game A are some generator functions, deep principles, which have driven uh, the engine uh, and cause it to have this exponential capacity with no ability to put on the brakes. Uh, one of which is that everything is defined in terms of short-term money on money return. That is the overarching value that crushes everything else. Uh, it, you know, it's quite interesting that that uh, is, is so central. Another one is a game theoretic problem that we call the multipolar trap. Uh, the multipolar trap is where there's a group of people who maybe would like to do the right thing, uh, but if one person does the wrong thing, they're forced by competitive dynamics uh, to follow along. Classic example is defense spending. Does any society actually want to do defense spending? Probably not. Uh, But if one of them chooses to and starts to ramp up spending on military, everybody else is forced to respond. And, uh, you know, referencing the Ukraine situation, uh, you know, even relatively peaceful, uh, what we thought are going to be peaceful areas like uh, Western Europe, are looking to double their defense spending, many of the countries over the next few years. So we're caught in a classic multipolar trap where one bad actor forces other people to respond. So Uh, what would be the generator function of uh, game B, proto Bs, let's say. So proto Bs, as I understand it, are the organizational structure for organizations that play a different game, right? And so which kind of uh, generator function do they have? Yeah, the key generator function, and it's easier to say than it is to do, which is I'm I'm looking very forward to hearing uh, other people's thoughts on how we do this, is to uh, move from uh, I win, you lose, or neutral uh, value exchange market economics to uh, what we call omni-win-win-win, where every decision that's made is in the context of actor A, and whoever they're dealing with on the other side, actor B, and the community they're embedded in, and the whole world. So if we could actually get to the point where each decision each person made in their life about everything, literally everything, uh, was uh, uh, couched in the omni win-win-win uh, way, uh, we would have a generator function of an immense, uh, immense power. Uh, right. You asked you asked about proto bees, as, as I alluded to the fact uh, game B, the term came into existence in January 2013. And a group of us gradually growing community, I don't know, 30,000 people now, something like that, uh, have been working on various aspects from mostly a theory perspective until recently. And we now uh, believe we have more than enough theory, it's time to put it into practice, try it out. And Proto-Bees is one of the two main vectors going forward, which is on the ground communities targeted about the Dunbar number, 150 people, uh, which history has shown can self-manage with light bureaucracy, maybe no bureaucracy, but relatively light bureaucracy. And then think of those as membranes in the biological sense. And then we have multiple Proto-Bees, which interact with each other via protocols. And uh, it's our, uh, our thought uh, that this is a way to build up a society 
that it, that adheres to those pillars that we talked about uh, previously. The second and and perhaps more relevant, I don't, I don't talk about it quite as much because we're not quite as far along in thinking about it, but we are thinking about it. We call it Game B Ventures, which are businesses uh, which are designed to operate on uh, uh, Game B principles and uh, are uh, able to literally outcompete their Game A competitors, at least in narrow domains, enough to get some traction in the economic world. Uh, and and I, you know, I work at the Santa Fe Institute uh, where we have many theorists, but one of the things we do is we require them to work with experimentalists or people who have data because uh, theory by itself can just got to go off to the wild blue yonder. Uh, so we're now at the point where it's time for game B to be in loops of theory, practice, theory, practice, theory, and, uh, and sort of empirically explore the design space of a social operating system for the future. So that's well, game B. Wonderful. Thank you, Jim. I give it over to Dennis because I hope we, we will zoom in into this in the general com uh, discussion, but for now, um, Dennis. Yeah, so um, let's continue with Marco because uh, maybe the segue was uh, yeah the, the, the concrete practice or the um, uh, how do we do this? And Marco is also in research, so he bridges the academic world, and but he's also engaged in actual uh, on the ground work in, in uh, such new organizations. So let's hear from Marco. So Marco, you wrote the book uh, called 3D Management. Um, so what is, it, what is 3D Management and how is it different from business as usual or game A business if you want? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, 3D Management is uh, the pioneer application of integral theory in business and um, Uh, my, the, the starting point of 3D management is uh, the realization that uh, if you study business, for example, the first thing that they will tell you in class is that the final objective of business is maximization of profits or maximization of economic value. And uh, if you make an integral analysis of that, uh, I mean, that's not integral at all. You know, they, they give you uh, the, the traditional business model or management model is uh, one-dimensional, whereas uh, we know from integral theory that any uh, integral analysis has more than one dimension. You know, there are many other dimensions that we have to, to take into account. And obviously, we know from, from, from the Aqual model, for example, that an integral analysis should take, should take into account at least uh, four different uh, aspects. That will be the, the, the psychological, then the, the, the behavioral and physical, and then the social and the cultural elements. Uh, if we uh, uh, like uh, reduce these four dimensions into what is called the big three dimensions of human existence, we get three dimensions that are the ones that are making up my model. Uh, so my model recognizes that uh, an integral perspective of <clears throat> business should take into account Uh, three uh, irreducible dimensions, which are the scientific dimension, the artistic dimension, and the ethical dimension. That's how I apply these big three dimensions to business. The scientific dimension will be the dimension of uh, the, 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 the dimension that is uh, normally uh, the hegemonic dimension of the gaming, uh, gaming theory, let's say is the one that is looking for maximization of uh, value. And it does that through productivity 
and through quality and financial uh, systems. Um, and it's what I call the dimension of the present because if you don't uh, have this dimension right, uh, you will have to close down your business because you are not uh, gonna be making uh, enough money to survive. So it's a dimension of survival. Uh, and that's why it is uh, so important. But then there are other dimensions equally important. The second dimension is the artistic dimension. The artistic dimension for me is the dimension of development, the development of the organization, the development of, of its products and services, and the development of, it, uh, of its people. Uh, this uh, artistic dimension is based on values like creativity, like innovation, like beauty, like uh, design, uh, anything that is making uh, the organization uh, ready for the future, you know, because if the uh, previous dimension was the dimension of the, free, uh, of the present, this is the dimension, in my opinion, of the future. Uh, if uh, you don't take care of this dimension, there will come other organizations that will uh, outcompete you. Uh, and then there is a third dimension that is the, the ethical dimension, that is the, the, the moral dimension of business, a dimension that is, uh, has a subject, uh, its main objective, the contribution to the common good. And uh, it has uh, uh, as values things like uh, social responsibility, sustainability, honesty, transparency, and so on and so forth. And this is uh, uh, a dimension, I mean, my model, I place it in a, in a triangle that is equilateral. So each uh, dimension is equally important as the other ones. And the idea is that you have to balance them. But I place uh, this uh, ethical dimension at the bottom of the triangle because uh, uh, this is the dimension that sets the limits to the other dimensions. I mean, the ethical dimension uh, sets uh, the limits of what is right and what is wrong and how far uh, are you willing to go in terms of making more money or something like that, you know? Uh, then uh, those are the, the, the three uh, irreducible, again, dimensions of business and of management, but uh, we need a fourth dimension to in integrate these uh, three dimensions in a single unit. So there are not imbalances and uh, is what I call the, the spiritual dimension. The spiritual dimension um, tries to integrate all these three dimensions and it does that through the uh, creating a higher purpose for, of, of the organization, a purpose that gives meaning and transcendence to the organization and its members, and a purpose that builds a community where everybody is uh, rowing in the single uh, in the in the same direction. So that would be my 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 model, and obviously, you know, this model uh, being an integral model, it can be applied to any kind of organizations. But then I have certain um, uh, requisites that I think are desirable for this uh, kind of uh, organizations. Like we can talk about that uh, later, maybe. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, in terms of application, um, you have applied these principles in a, in a project on the ground, so to speak, in, a, uh, in Mallorca, in, mm -hmm. the, uh, in the cinema, I believe. Yeah. Uh, tell us more about that. Uh, this was very interesting to read about. Well, yes, so, that's, that's the, probably the, 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 the place where um, I've uh, developed uh, my, my theory 
in a bigger way because then I uh, provide a consultancy for some other organization, but then my involvement it hasn't been uh, as big. But in this case, it was uh, a cinema. The, it's a very beautiful story because it, it was a chain of cinemas that was uh, uh, about to go in, uh, to disappear because it belonged uh, to, a, to a Spanish chain of cinema that was distributed all over Spain. And um, in the previous crisis, in the, in the 2008, uh, especially, uh, there, there was a big crisis in the, in the uh, film industry worldwide, uh, and in particular in Spain, there were a lot of things that were going on in terms of uh, that, that uh, the digital world was coming to cinema, uh, so you had to substitute all the all the all the equipment for digital digital equipment. Then, uh, in particular, in Spain, there was an increase in taxes, huge increase in taxes for for culture. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, there were a lot of cinemas disappearing in Spain. And this uh, particular cinema, uh, was, uh, the one we had in Spain belonging to to this chain was about to disappear. And one of the, 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 the particularity of this uh, chain of cinemas is that it was a cinema that was uh, uh, playing all the movies in original version. That is something very uncommon in, in Spain. In, here in Spain, we dub all the movies. So if you are a really uh, uh, cinephile, uh, you cannot uh, hear to, 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 uh, to the movies in, the, in their original version if, if you go to the theater. Uh, and secondly, uh, the 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 other the other aspect is that they are playing movies that are more uh, kind of independent uh, movies, uh, art art house kind of cinema. It is an art house kind of cinema, and um, uh, something very beautiful happened. That is that there was a social movement when people heard about that. Uh, which is something very uncommon uh, from uh, in Mallorca, as maybe Tom knows, uh, as he's living in Mallorca now, uh, that we Mallorcans are very conformist kind of people, you know. So if uh, something that we don't like happens, we say, okay, what, what can we do about it? So you, we, we, we are the conformist type in that respect. As, uh, uh, and in here, it happened uh, a sort of miracle that people got together to rescue this uh, cinema. And uh, as a result of that, uh, a lot of people uh, started giving, man giving up money for the, for the cinema and uh, they created an association to rescue the cinema. So then uh, this chain of cinema sell, sold the cinema to, 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 the, to this uh, group, the, this association that was created. So the cinema was rescued. And uh, uh, we uh, decided to apply the principles of uh, democracy and uh, it was the moment of, of, of uh, Occupy Wall Street and so on. So there was this fight in the atmosphere. So it was a cinema, and it is a cinema still, operated by its members. And uh, nowadays it's a totally self-managed uh, cinema uh, based on these principles. And we've been able to survive for, 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 um, for, uh, for all these years. And uh, uh, this is one of the, 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 the virtues of this system, you know, because the level of involvement and commitment and engagement of the people that are in this uh, linked to the cinema in a way or, or another is extraordinary. I mean, I hear like uh, members of the cinema, uh, so they are, and they are maybe only spectators that they go there 
and, and they pay, pay the yearly fee and, and they go to the movies and they don't have any further involvement, but maybe they tell me, uh, I, would, I, I never go to, a, to another theater in Mallorca apart from this one. I always wait, if they play a movie that, that I like in another theater, I just wait to see it in, in, a, in a platform, you know, in HBO or in Netflix or wherever. But I, I, I never go to another uh, other cinema because that would be like betraying uh, my cinema. This is my <laughs> cinema and I don't want to betray it. And the same happens with the, with the employees, the level of involvement and commitment. And that, then again, there is a lot of people that are volunteering and working for the cinema and spending a lot of hours working there. So that's one of the beauties of this uh, alternative systems, you know. So it's it's uh, there's an element of community and a purpose. Especially people feel connected and take over responsibility and uh, collaborate in a different way. I, I assume um, that's 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 really uh, inspiring example. And uh, the topic of purpose to find a segue to Tom <laughs> is also <laughs> very much at the forefront of his. Uh, uh, um, mind and uh, but before I ask um, uh, before I ask you about purpose um, in your view what constitutes an organization so when like because we often talk about organizations and uh, when do we have one in the first place <laughs> can you give us a definition or something like that from your uh, from your view Tom oh yes so um, I redefine a lot of things in my work for sure including the, the definition of what an organization is. Um, I kind of come from a, an entrepreneurial background. I've had the pleasure of answering your original question, Dennis, of how do we structure things when we come together as people, as partners with a cool idea? How do we get that cool idea into the world as an entrepreneur? That's kind of it, right? And so I've been doing this for a really long time, including uh, changing the way we answer that question with Holacracy for the last 15 years. And so um, I, like everybody else, for the longest time, I thought an organization was just a collection of cool people all hanging out together to do really interesting things, right? It's this collection of people, of like-minded people coming together to do really cool work in the world. And all the other stuff was just kind of getting in the way of that. Um, and we still kind of think in our conventional organizations, I would say Game B organizations, Uh, as um, organizations, as a collection of people. And it seems like the game is to optimize or make more efficient the people in the system to somehow for commercial gain. It just, it sounds obscene to me now today. And so I no longer define an organization as a collection of people. And I think this is one of the key distinctions that Holacracy brought to the table, among other things, um, is this separation of the notion that an organization is something um, in its own right, it is something that hangs on um, a new attractor, a, a new generator, purpose. And everything that that organization does is geared to expressing purpose into the world. And we separate the individuals from the organization. So the individuals come together to serve a purpose greater than themselves as a collection of people with their own way of coming about, um, organizing themselves and relating to themselves but separate from the organizational structure itself. And we can get away with that separation because holacracy institutionalizes and systematizes a set of rules that coordinates our activity. So we no longer have to rely on relational management structures 
or engagement structures or development structures. We have a rule set, an algorithm, if you will, to use modern day DAO terms. We have a way of coordinating effort to get work done in pursuit of purpose. And we all play by the same set of rules. This is amazing to me. This is a, a, a radically different way. I say radically different. Holacracy One's 15 years old. <laughs> so <laughs> this has been around for a bit. And self-organization before that, as everybody on the call well knows, is decades old. Back with Simcoe, Simcoe and Sociocracy and Gore and all of the others, Morningstar, uh, the early, early pioneers. So there's been this intuition that the way we have structured things, as Jim said in Game B, is just reaching its limits. And that was my own experience as an entrepreneur um, before launching Holacracy One. I was an entrepreneur trying to fix things and make things better with all the incremental improvements, <laughs> leadership development, total quality management, business process improvement, lean and agile systems, you know, all of the stuff. <laughs> and I had um, the opportunity to have that done to me by some of the, the big leading management consultancies. And then I was part of the management consultancies doing it to others, <laughs> trying to incrementally improve organizational structures, systems, and processes, um, and people even. And in my experience, doing that work, all of those things that I just mentioned have really um, amazing elements or kernels of goodness baked in, like lean or agile or business process mapping. And all these things are really important to do, but they went right back into the same power structure, the same management hierarchy, right? So the, 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 um, the goodness that was promised with all of these incremental improvement techniques went right back into the same system that withered that away, <laughs> made that atrophy away and died. And the, the cycle was almost predictable, 18 months. So we get this huge change initiative and I was part of them and I led them, right? And we get people all excited about the promise of change, the promise of making it better around here. And we'd all go away to the offsite. We'd all do the ropes course and the trust courses and we'd all get really comfortable with each other in hopes that that would somehow make things better. And then we all arrive back at the office after that experience and management comes out and does what management does um, and operates with implicit, sometimes, oftentimes, hidden rules. It's like, why are these decisions being made? Um, why isn't everything more transparent and visible? And then over time, as I said, all that goodness atrophies away and dies. And this led to, I think, cynicism for me in most organizational structures. This whole change management process and the promise of improvement is really one of the driving motivators for me. I had my butt handed to me countless times as an entrepreneur, um, trying all these uh, clever um, improvement techniques and still getting the same results. And I kind of reached my limit of that in around 2005, 2006. I did a public company offering. Uh, we had all the best minds uh, trying to make really cool things happen and it failed. And it failed in almost predictable ways in hindsight. And at that point, I was like, I was kind of broken, broken open enough to consider new things. And that's when I crossed paths with my um, to-be-come business partner, Brian, who was experimenting with new things, Brian Robertson, in his company. Um, and we crossed paths in 2006 and launched Holacracy One in 2007. 
And um, 15 years later, we have, uh, as I said, as Dennis introduced me, what I think is a gold standard, not the only, but a gold standard replacement for management hierarchy. And I do mean that sentence in its entirety. Holacracy is a complete wholesale replacement for management hierarchy with no equivocations. It's, it's seriously, <laughs> it's a completely different way. There are no bosses, managers, supervisors, no directors, there are no teams, there are no managers leading teams. There's everybody is in the game for the work, the work in pursuit of purpose and the whole system biases towards that. And that's what I love about the, the self-organizing systems. Everything hangs on purpose. And um, as Marco was talking about, the save the cinema is a cool purpose. That's all you need to start. Save the cinema and let's self-organize around that. And instead of trying to make people feel better, and my view of self-organization and what an organization is, we seed that purpose into a system and then everybody gets inspired about save the cinema. And we all play by the same set of rules to figure out what is the work needed to save the cinema and what structure owns that work. Game on. And so that's kind of self-organization holacracy style amongst a lot of other things. <laughs> awesome. Um, and of course the, the work continued um, as I was also able to witness um, with, with uh, the, the other company Encode in the sense of okay, taking it one step further and also looking at the financial uh, structures and the legal <clears throat> structures uh, to uh, to get rid of that final, like let's say, boundary of or barrier of um, the employee versus uh, em employer versus employee divide, like the the two classes of people that are still there, even in the most progressive organizations, due to our legal structures. So um, yeah, and now leading even 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 uh, leading into work with uh, the whole DAO space, which is probably an interesting topic we can. We can come back to so that that does it for the for the first round of general introductions and now uh it's open season for anyone who <laughs> wants to who wants to respond or feels inspired to uh, uh to yeah to speak any to speak to anything any of the things that we've heard from each of you so does anyone yeah jim please hey hi thomas uh i'll address you uh, I was an entrepreneur many times, corporate executive, uh, C-level exec in a multi-billion dollar <laughs> multinational company, public company, CEO, et cetera. And I will say I tended to resist the peddlers of various management <laughs> nostrums. Uh, Amen, brother. <laughs> uh, I read a few of the books, mostly threw them against the wall. Tom Peters. Remember when Tom Peters was oh, the yeah, man? Of course. Talk oh. about cutting the heart out of an organization. I only mm -hmm. found one rule. Uh, and I found this by you being, having the counter example, the last company I worked for where I didn't have any authority, <laughs> uh, which, it, which was, I did exactly the opposite of what they did, which is to make radical intellectual honesty the fundamental value of the company. It's amazing <laughs> how much of a solvent that is against other kinds of badness. Uh, and, uh, and I would, you know, literally shoot anybody who plays the game of politics. And I would define what that meant. Uh, you make somebody else look bad. Uh, you withhold information. Uh, you know, you're doing your best for everybody. You steal credit from other people, any of those things. And if you, if you can, it's almost impossible to inject it into an existing company, though you can get <laughs> some 
uh, traction uh, by shooting people mostly uh, mm -hmm. so that people realize that you're telling the truth. From a startup though, you can do it because you can mm -hmm. lay this out for people uh, at, during the hiring process. And it's amazing what a filter that it scares the hell out of some people, right? And then other it people, does, I've been sure. waiting for this forever. Yeah, and so I would yeah. just say that's the one quack nostrum, the run mm -hmm. method that actually does work. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, with respect to holacracy, um, I did read the Constitution for holacracy. You, that was a lot of fun. It. I read oh it God. carefully uh, in Over preparation. To, to uh, no, that was actually, uh, I like that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm a strange dude, right? Uh, I read it to be in preparation for about a 90 minute or maybe it was two hour uh, conversation I had with Brian Robertson, which was uh, wow. quite interesting. And I have his book on holacracy on my to be read list. And uh, mm -hmm. I said, hmm, this is interesting. This addresses the, the other part that Rutt's method uh, does not address, which needs to be addressed for game B, which is how do we transition from box-based uh, management to role-based management? Yeah, yeah uh, that's huge. Uh, I mean, I, it's fundamental. And uh, one of my uh, motivations for realizing that after I'd retired from business, so it was too late to actually try it, uh, was reading the really amazing book called Hierarchy in the Forest by Chris Boehm, uh, a world-famous anthropologist. The book should have actually been called Anti-Hierarchy in the Forest mm -hmm. uh, yeah. because its rationale is that uh, for 100,000 years, our forager ancestors rigorously built social operating systems to, to defeat our genetic tendency towards hierarchy. He makes yeah. a very convincing argument that we are chimps and bonobos, let's assume 50-50, and both are kind of nasty hierarchical animals. Chimpanzees are, you know, stereotypical sociopaths. Uh, bonobos, while they're sometimes portrayed as the hippies of the great apes, not really true, and not <laughs> as bad as chimps. But you wouldn't want to live in a bonobo. Hippies of the uh, great apes—that actually uh, works for me. <laughs> uh, uh, true, either. And he, you know, demonstrates from some serious biological uh, arguments that uh, we got, you know, fair bits of both, and we should expect humans to be much more hierarchical than foragers are. Uh, and he goes through a whole series of arguments on how we stop the emergence of hierarchy early. Uh, and then he talks just a little bit about how we stop doing that at larger scales. And mm -hmm. so uh, one of the things he, he points out is that in uh, one of the parts of the social operating system is no person has general long lasting authority. Uh, each, uh, but on the other hand, as we all know, people differ substantially in their capacity, either from inherent capacity uh, with respect to like personality type, IQ, physical stature, mm -hmm. whatever, and their accumulated uh, assets of experience in life. So, uh, you know, the, the best uh, woman uh, tuber forager, you know, leads the, 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 the troop walking through the uh, places where tubers might uh, be to, to go harvest them. The, the person is the best hunter of antelope leads hunts for antelope, but the best uh, hunter of monkeys leads hunts for monkeys. And uh, these things are fluid and they change as new, new people come in. Because, And contrary to popular opinion, the forager groups were actually fairly fluid. People came and left. They weren't really family bound units at all. And so they actually uh, invented the idea of role-based leadership. Uh, and that's, that's, of course, the antithesis of what we have in uh, corporate America, political uh, systems, et cetera, where somebody is in a box, right? And uh, uh, even though I was in, as a corporate leader, spent a <laughs> tremendous amount of time on 
people. I would spend a third of my time easily on hiring and development. Uh, we all know that the right person was never in the right box, right? And in most companies that are just stone stupid about such things, the mismatch between person and the box uh, is uh, nightmarishly bad, right? <laughs> uh, you know, the box is badly construed and the fit of the person to the box uh, is relatively minimal. And hence, uh, you know, why uh, big organizations are as bad as they are. So anyway, uh, I think one of the things that holacracy and sociocracy and other kinds of uh, things of that family uh, provide for is a mechanism uh, to get towards uh, uh, role-based and transient and dynamic leadership based on the you know, dynamic reality of what needs to be dealt, dealt with right now. And so that, that I liked about it. The, uh, the downside of it when I read the Constitution was, I say, for, an organ for a smaller organization, it seemed like a goddamn lot of paperwork. And uh, <laughs> my, my reaction was, uh, you know, ugh, you, know uh, you know, up to 20 or 30 people, uh, it wasn't obvious to me. Uh, that the hierarchy, that the paperwork was worth the win, but it might be. Uh, Brian argued strenuously that, <laughs> as you know, he likes to argue and he'll argue strenuously, but with a nice smile on his face. We had a wonderful conversation. Uh, uh, he said, oh, it's great for two people. And I go, oh. Uh, so anyway, those are my comments about uh, what I know about sociocracy uh, and holacracy. I think it's very promising. Mm. I think it's uh, you know interesting for sure. But mm. uh, those are my, my reactions. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. I could jump into any one or a number of those, but I, I don't want to hijack where we're going. If you want to re me to reply or respond, I certainly can do that. A couple of things. Let's, let's hear your, let's hear your response. Yeah, uh, first, Jim, it's so nice to cross paths with you. Um, I, I love your thinking, I love your work, and um, the, the, the points you're making uh, really resonate with me. I had the privilege of working with a lot of progressive leading entrepreneurs, household name entrepreneurs, you know, they've created some really cool things. And those of us that have been in this game for a while have an intuition about what works. There are good leaders, good managers, progressive um, entrepreneurs, and have intuitively and encoded these principles, either formally or informally, in their style of leadership. And when you talk about making things visible, um, the, the severe rationality, everything must make sense, everything must be explainable or visible. This is one of these, this element is actually a key foundational element as I think about the power shift. What do we need to encode in the rules? to adequately express game B kind of systems. And one of the fundamentals is a high degree of visibility. Everything's visible, or as much visibility as you can stomach, including the visibility and the transparency around things that might even need to be kept private or confidential, but be visible and transparent about that too, so that everybody can participate in sensing into whether or not that still works whether or not that still serves the broader purpose. And we can dynamically adjust as we go along. And the other thing is um, there's been a lot of experimentation in functional mapping um, back in old school days. You know, there used to be a whole movement of trying to functionally map an organization instead of using boxes and job descriptions and uh, pyramid charts. And functional mapping, quite honestly, I think is a precursor to the self-organizational structures that we're now seeing. The biomimicry, the other thing about the forest, 
It's these are naturally occurring structures that aren't fused to a human ego. In other words, they're not projections of mind predicting and controlling what we think might be needed in some distant or near future, but they're actually responding to current reality, market conditions, uh, constraints or abundance in the system, like a forest, like a natural system that are evolving, expanding, contracting, morphing, trimming, and pruning itself. Nothing is permanent. There are no permanent structures. The whole thing moves, right? And there are no people that hold power. That sounds like a, a really weird statement um, and one that might sound even naive <laughs> to some, um, but in a system of rules where the whole structure is broken down, uh, answering the question, what is the work and where does it live? That work lives in roles. Those roles have clear definition about its boundaries, its purpose, its domain, its accountabilities, and then people fill those roles. The role has the authority. The person technically does not. There is no personal authority over the rules themselves. You can't show up as Jim and say, because I'm Jim, I say, doesn't fly. And I have the privilege of working with a lot of executives who are very used to that stance <laughs> and get a lot of shit done that way. <laughs> very effective shit done that way. And that's a big shift, right? Of surrendering personal autonomy and power to a system that expresses something you want in the world. And that's why you would surrender. It, you are surrendering it to express a purpose greater than yourself, save the cinema. And then that whoo, drops the ego, right? And then everybody plays by the same set of rules, which starts to get the operational efficiency in the system. Everybody's playing the same game together and nobody <laughs> at speed, <laughs> this is a, 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 a good case scenario. Nobody's worried about the manager swooping in and pulling the rug out from under you because they decide they've had a bad day. And this is the other thing. We can rely on progressive um, leaders um, to an extent, but everybody has a bad day. And we want a system that we rely on that everybody can trust and everybody can participate in um, with a system of rules as opposed to an implicit holding of power by a person. I would like to say something about uh, what uh, Jim said before. And I apologize if I'm getting a bit off topic. But uh, he made us this wonderful journey about our anthropological evolution from primates to, to, to uh, modern corporations. And I have my own theory why this has happened. I mean, I totally agree with Jim that uh, our uh, primate ancestors were uh, or are uh, extremely hierarchical societies. Uh, and then uh, when uh, human beings have, uh, appeared as foragers, uh, we were more self-organized. There wasn't this huge uh, formal uh, hierarchy. And then we became, again, hierarchical, extremely hierarchical. And uh, my explanation for that is that it's a matter of adaptation to the environment. When you are in an unstable environment, like uh, these primates were in the, in the jungle, uh, it's good to have a very hierarchical uh, formal hierarchies in their society. But then there were some crazy monkeys because the monkeys that were saying they were the ones that stayed in the trees that wanted to go down from the trees and start exploring the savannas. And in this environment, 
uh, is a more a much more unstable and unpredictable environment and it's much more risky so you you need uh less hierarchy so you became more self-organized and then and you created the, these foraging societies and then uh after that came the agricultural revolutions where we settled and we created again an stable environment and then hierarchies appeared again so uh is what uh spiral dynamics said that we are that we are adapting to the to the conditions that we face and in the moment that we are facing now we need uh less hierarchy or we don't need uh, we don't need formal hierarchies because we are living in a highly unstable and unpredictable environment that's my explanation of all that mm. Yeah, I was I was while I was listening to you. I was also thinking, yeah. And today we have the VUCA conditions, the volatility, Absolutely. uncertainty, and what the others C and A were, ambiguity and something. Uh, complexity, complexity, <laughs> complexity. Thank you. Yeah, especially complexity, right? So we are the victims of our own success as a species, uh, in some level. So now we created conditions that are so chaotic, so chaotic, or you know that are we are in over our heads. And now we need to be able to dynamically steer once more and and adapt quick. And uh, those this is where the bottlenecks of um, traditional organization just you know uh, I think will become less competitive. And that's I think a question I have for you, Jim. Um, so you said that a game game B parasitizes game A, I guess. <laughs> so um, so. Uh, is that is that could you see that proto bees outmaneuver or how does it, how does that um the, the how does that dynamic unfold because we have to in some way cooperate with with the existing we have to plug into the existing system to uh, because it's it's the, the that's where the lifeblood and the financial uh thing is going on and but we also have to compete with uh that system to some degree without um yeah without just i don't know going in, in in straight opposition to it so how do you see that dance how do you think it would that would unfold that's a great question and it's actually multi-dimensional as you might expect and complex right uh which is that uh, uh if you think about what makes uh, think of you know game b as a very little teeny social operating system trying to grow in this big mass of game a Uh, we have to outcompete in multiple dimensions, and one of the key ones is talent, right? And uh, the the problem with game A, the meta, there's so many problems. But one of the great problems is that these generator functions ignore one thing: human well-being. What a concept, right? Why would it ignore human well-being? And so, the, you know, the, one of the fundamental design uh, goals of game B is to build a society that's based around. Uh, human well-being, and it's what's especially underlined uh, for young people uh, about to have a family or have a family. So that's got to be a wonderful place to raise their children. When I go out in the world and I talk to people and do this all the time, actually I've been doing it virtually the last two years, by far the strongest resonance to the Game B signal is from people 25 to 40 uh, who either have very young children or are looking to start their family. And they say, God almighty, I don't want to raise my children in this game A. They don't have the words for it, but this blah, 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 blah. And so uh, if game B 
provides very substantial upgrade in human well-being, which we believe we can easily do. The, the standard is so low, uh, we can <laughs> outcompete on recruiting talent, right? And in the early days in particular, where I'd say there's 100 uh, proto-beads with 15,000 people, uh, you know, we'll have the pick of the chicks, right? We'll have the, you know, the best uh, people that we can pass and possibly imagine. And interestingly, uh, uh, you know, with respect to this parasitism issue, uh, we need some game A resources, but over time we'll need less and less. Uh, and the actual game A cost of living in the game B world by design will be much lower than it is in game A itself. Uh, because the other big design principle of game B is that uh, we have to live at a way that's sustainable with respect to the earth. And by our rough calculations, and this has been validated, or actually we got this from other people, uh, for Americans, that means about a 75% reduction of inputs of things and energy. For Europeans, about two-thirds, uh, 65%, something like that. Uh, so uh, interestingly, our highly talented Game B people don't need to make a whole lot of money, right? So the the Game A costs of putting together teams to go compete back in Game A is way less expensive because they're getting paid significantly in psychic income of human well-being. Uh, so here we have low-cost labor of the highest quality. Uh, now, does that sound like a prescription for a competitive, sustainable competitive advantage? Hell yes. Uh, and truthfully, it actually frees up uh, some dimensions of uh, design space around uh, non-hierarchical management because we actually might be able to give up a little efficiency in the design space of management because we have these other two great advantages. Uh, but I suspect that in certain kinds of work, uh, even the, this the kind of uh, organizational design will be a plus as well. Uh, for instance, in creative work. I think it's so funny because one of the things we hate about Game B is advertising and the uh, pernicious reprogramming of our needs and desires through advertising. Uh, but wouldn't it be an interesting and uh, strange play for uh, some proto-bees to, to become ad agencies, right? Uh, and just the kind of people that would be attracted to game B uh, and would like to work in a non-hierarchical environment are likely to have high skill sets for doing game A advertising. Uh, and uh, isn't that an interesting and strange, uh, you know, sell the capitalists the rope to hang themselves with uh, kind of idea. And so, of course, being pragmatists, we will look at, uh, at business categories where the combination of superior talent, lower labor costs, and non-hierarchical management structure, and of course, employee ownership, uh, you know, combine to provide a sustainable competitive advantage in that category. Uh, and of course, over time, as Game B gets bigger, there'll be more such categories that we can address, but we'll be smart and attack those where we, where we can. Are we going to start a nail factory first? Probably not, right? Those are highly optimized, grinding kinds of businesses. So we'll, uh, we will select businesses uh, where the, uh, you know, the structural competitive advantage of Game B versus Game A will actually pay off in the ability to outcompete in the category. Excellent. Um, I, have a, I have a question to Tom, actually, and I was wondering, do you think, um, uh, Tom, uh, what role might the emergence of Web3 and decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs play to create better incentive structures and solve uh, global coordination problems? Do you have any mm. thoughts on that? Because um, I think a lot of what drives game A is, is the incentives, the financial capital incentives, as we heard, 
Um, they're all geared towards a certain thing. And, you know, with tokens and tokenization, there's a lot more things we can play around with and it's more programmable. So what's your hunch there um, of the development? Yeah, I mean, that's yet the, the next level of emergence there. I, I don't even know what Web3 necessarily means. I have an intuition maybe a little bit. Um, it just means next, right? <laughs> um, a little bit of feeling of DAOs, um, decentralized autonomous organizations. But I will claim that the more mature self-organizing uh, operating systems on offer have been DAOs, really, for quite some time, just not on-chain. And so the next evolution is to formalize and systematize further these rule sets that we are trusting to coordinate our effort to get purposeful work done. So the constitution that Jim points out, yeah, it's a, it's a hefty document. <laughs> so the, the rule sets um, are no fun to read, but can be a lot of fun to play. And you just pick any sport that your your favorite sport, whether it be American football, European soccer, or whatever, um, tennis. There's a rule book. You know, um, you don't read the rule book to enjoy the sport. You play, and the the, the play, the gameplay can be transmitted without ever reading the rules. Actually, there's a transmission quality, um, and so especially if the system supports your gameplay, so. I think we're seeing, we want to treat, we want gamification of this, which is part of the incentive to make it fun to play the game of work in pursuit of purpose. So there are two things. It's fun to express meaningful, useful purposes into the world. That's, that's the, the shift. And we don't, have to, we don't have to worry about somebody, as I said, swooping in and having a bad day. We're all playing the same game together. And so we're getting glimpses of this in the self-organizing operating systems like sociocracy, holacracy, teal, responsive, all the others that are playing. Now we encode those in rule sets that live on the blockchain. We also encode the other elements, the capital structures, because people want to get paid. They want meaningful work, um, work that makes them feel like they're contributing to something of value. That's a huge incentive. I'm uh, totally aligned with Jim's thinking on that incentive alone allows us to compete better for talent because you get a direct experience of seeing your contribution make an impact, right? And then you get rewarded for that in near real time. So blockchain and tokenomics allow for reward systems, incentive systems to be completely rethought. Salaries gone, monthly paychecks gone, right? This is nonsense stuff in a self-organized, fully decentralized world. You're contributing your time, energy, and talent to a purpose you care about via a smart contract that remunerates you in the appropriate way while you're playing a game. That's what we're, we're seeing in the future. And, and, and it, is, it becomes just a, a, um, a sea of purposes that are seeded into decentralized autonomous organizations that are attracting, that's the strange attractor, attracting people and talent to it. And then the blockchain uh, and the smart contracts enforce the rules and provide the incentives. And so while right now, these things that we call DAOs are woefully immature, in my opinion, um, but hold all the promise to change the game yet again. So uh, my attention is how do we mature these things up? 
how do we introduce DAOs as they're currently construed to what I would call 21st century governance, the experiments and the thought work that's gone on in game B and self-organization and sociocracy and holacracy and merge these worlds together to give us a much better system that's fun to play and incentivizes the, the energy that we need to get the work done in the world that we need. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I'll just uh, a brief, I'll try to be brief, not my natural forte, but uh, uh, with respect to Web3, uh, this actually goes back to thinking about automation in general, is think about what you want first before falling in love with a tool set. Uh, when I look at Web3, and I've looked at a lot of Web3, in fact, I've helped design one of the successful coins and advised another. And uh, I think that building DAOs today on top of radically trustless architectures like Ethereum uh, is uh, letting the tools getting in the way of the work. Uh, and just how back in the, in the 80s, we'd say, document your system on paper first before you automate it. Uh, figure out what you want to accomplish from uh, governance. Design the governance uh, rules, environments, boundary conditions, incentives, et cetera. And then go look for a tool rather than say, oh, yeah, within Ethereum, I can do this and uh, defy that. Uh, and so start with function and uh, look to the tooling later. To my mind, I see this stuff all the time, people throwing business plans over the transom. And I'll say, now, why did you staple uh, Ethereum to this? It's not necessary, right? There's lots of other less uh, expensive more straightforward ways to do it if you can back off of radical trustlessness. And in reality, most of the world's got to have some trust in it anyway. Uh, so why bring in all the costs and slowness and awkwardness of uh, the radical trustless uh, Satoshi style blockchain? So. I wanted to say something as well about DAOs and Web3. I'm probably I'm the less qualified voice in the, in the room about that because I'm not an expert at all. But uh, I was all excited uh, hearing Tom about uh, uh, what he was uh, proposing for future developments of uh, DAOs. And uh, obviously I see a huge potential with DAOs and the Web3, but its use will depend uh, vastly on the level of consciousness of its users. Uh, it's the same as the internet that came loaded with promises of decentralization, and uh, democratization, and at the end of the day, it has ended up uh, mostly as a highly uh, centralized instrument of control of the power elites. So the Web3 and the DAOs uh, at the moment are largely being used at the moment uh, as uh, to foster efficiency and to increase the power of those who have more tokens, basically. So it's gonna mm -hmm. greatly depend on who's leading those developments. Uh, and uh, it will have people like Tom Tomison uh, leading those developments. Uh, I have high hopes, but uh, if we have others, I don't know. And so far, what I see is a lot of orange and not many second tier consciousness uh, in all this crypto world, you know. Yeah. yeah. Right, it's uh, it's just a tool, and if if everything uh, if if you if your tool is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail, right? So uh, and Web three is not different, and I like the parallel you draw to Web two or the web in general, like where we all had this. Oh, it's gonna be a, a 
yeah the 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 planet's gonna wake into its nervous the, the, the internet's its nervous system and we're all gonna wake up and hold hands and sing goodbye or whatever mm -hmm. but uh not quite not <laughs> so, quite yeah <laughs> so so uh, and which maybe leads us to uh the the topic that um that is current in, in our minds uh which is uh yeah so it's all not all kumbaya especially uh, globally as we know so uh, we wanted to have a, a brief look at um, uh, at the, the situation in Ukraine and maybe think maybe we can think about like what what structures uh, are in play like also management and organizational structures or political power structures um, and what would uh, kind of uh, from 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 the new organizational or game B world um, what would help or could could would have done gone differently <laughs> maybe i don't know uh if uh, some of that wisdom were was applied like um because we, it seems like we have a single point of failure in in vladimir putin uh at the top of the power hierarchy calling all the shots uh and that is uh yeah that's tragic um so um yeah any thoughts on that from from any one of you the interesting question would be i think that was the comment that you know that conflict is um you know could be a turning point in terms of how we look at um you know the movement the transition between game a and game b is it a, a regress to game a or is there embedded encoded let's say a way of moving to game b as a, as as nations so that that would be the interesting question for me at least yeah, well, yeah that's actually great absolutely I, I would like to say only that uh that's a very good point because uh that could be a catalyst for changing uh consciousness about how we look at things i mean uh we need a game b because there's no planet b that's the basic reason in a nutshell uh, so, so we are in the middle of a health crisis. We are on the verge, uh, on the verge of ecological disaster, and now we have even nuclear threat. That it was something I, I thought we have uh, come over with. You know that uh, we have uh, it was not a threat anymore. So, so we are going back uh, to the to the 70s and the 80s to the Cold War. So, so uh, do we need any more reasons to change our ways? That's my question. Mm. You wanted to chime in, Jim? Uh, yeah, uh, I liked uh, you know your pivot there. I think that's actually quite interesting. Something I've been thinking about. I've done a series of uh, four podcasts now on Ukraine with various experts, and I'm doing uh, uh, at least two more next week. So this is something I've got my head into fairly a bit about, and uh, I like to think about it from, as always, the systems. Uh, uh, perspective. Uh, one of the interesting things that's come out of about uh, the Ukraine situation is that we may be using game B methods uh, with uh, game A uh, uh, systems in the uh, West's response to Putin. Uh, in particular, if we go back and look at history, uh, modernism seemed great until August 1914, probably. 
right? Uh, you go back and read the writings in the early 20th century, it's all optimism all the way, right? I uh, said, so, oh yeah, the economies are so interconnected, we can never have any more wars, everything's getting better every year, it's better. Well, guess what? 1914 opened everybody's eyes. And since 1914, uh, uh, there's been a deep libido in humans to avoid that disaster happening again. And so we attempted to build collective security as the answer. The first League of Nations, right, uh, was going to, uh, World War I was going to be the war that ended all wars. Well, guess what? They were wrong. Uh, World War II came along even more horrible. Uh, then the United Nations uh, was put in place to uh, prevent uh, war from happening again. And probably wouldn't have done much. However, uh, we did stumble into mutual assured destruction uh, as the uh, solution to the renewal of uh, war amongst the, uh, you know, the, the big powers, at least still lots of uh, border wars, civil wars turned ugly, you know, Vietnam, uh, you know, uh, things of that sort, but uh, no major clashes between the major powers. Uh, and that indeed is, of course, Putin's biggest uh, violation. He's broken the taboo against cross-border invasions to seize territory uh, on land uh, and, and has done so as a nuclear power, making it even worse. But as it's turned out, maybe network warfare, economic warfare, cutting them off the internet, etc., cetera, uh, may turn out to be a uh, sufficiently low cost and sufficiently unrisky form of collective security, and it has the nice built-in game beeness to it uh, that it requires cooperation of many players to be effective. For instance, if just the United States uh, were bringing sanctions against Putin, wouldn't work at all. You know, there'd be plenty of uh, ways for the Russians to get out of it. But the fact that most of the countries on earth are participating in this, and that even the companies that aren't required by law to do so are, are nonetheless coming to the table based on uh, public <clears throat> demand more than anything else, I'm sure, not their, uh, uh, their tender-hearted uh, uh, tendencies. Uh, it's actually quite amazing in that this self-regulating, self-assembling network response <laughs> to aggression might actually work. Now, whether it will act fast enough to bring Putin to the, to the negotiating table is a question that's still open, but even if it doesn't, uh, and it, but it destroys Russia thereafter, or cripples Russia very severely. It's an object lesson to anybody else who wants to try that same game. Are you listening to us, China? Right? <laughs> so what are, you saying, are you saying that the nature of war changed due to the fact that we have internet now and that everything is connected and that we can apply these pressure points <laughs> because, like, because of the interconnectedness of all things? Yeah, exactly. That mm. maybe we finally reached that point we thought we were at in 1914 where war, where war mm. was impossible. Literally, you could read people that say war is impossible because right. we're so interconnected. Maybe we actually now are so interconnected uh, that if, if and only if there's a consensus, i.e. most of the countries of the world agree, which is a good way to keep one hegemon from mm -hmm. you know, abusing their power. You know, U.S. has abused its power, let's be honest, right? Uh, in the past, you know, Iraq, that was very bad. Uh, not quite as bad as what Putin's doing, but close. Uh, so the, the beauty of this is that if we are indeed in this highly, highly networked world where a consensus of people acting together can so severely punish an aggressor without having to go to war, we are in a new place. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to, to um, jump in one 
one one one time more because what, what's what was interesting with the corona pandemic was that it was a global coordination of some practices everybody had to wear masks everybody had to you know confine themselves at home and now you see this global you know coordination in response to the attack of putin which is only possible through through the internet you know and so i wonder how you know how much of that like how much game game b is already embedded in that global coordination and and that ties as well with uh, how uh, these new vanguard organizations are uh, basically uh, getting things done but is by basically peer pressure you know mechanisms of, of peer pressure is with the traditional hierarchies things got done by somebody on top telling you what to do and imposing rules uh, upon you. In this case, we have a decentralized mechanism where <clears throat> peer pressure, uh, if you don't follow the, 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 the rule set, for example, of a holocracy, is gonna be self-corrected by peer pressure, by the people in the circle that are telling you, you are not doing your job right. So you don't need uh, a hierarchy called uh, somebody uh, telling you what to do or or bailing for for yeah. that that the, the rules are being respected it can be a yeah. decentralized mechanism as this is and the even, case even the resistance you know uh, just in terms I, I don't know much about the um military situation but what i can gather is there's there's a centralized kind of army on the one on one side and the other side there's there's people with a like they're lit up with purpose they're like uh, decentralized <clears throat> and they, they, they just self-organize spontaneously and see what can we do. And, and, the, and they, yeah, there is, there's a lot of um, sensing and responding going on, uh, enhanced by the technical uh, uh, means we have. And, and the, the defense, you know, with these uh, is, is also interesting, the balance tipping there. We have these Stinger missiles and, and these these other defense systems that they're really hard to, you know, you have a tank, you're, you're, you're a target, you know, you drive there, <laughs> like somebody comes with this thing. And, and, and uh, so now the whole world supplying these kinds of weapons to the Ukrainians will make it really fucking hard for, uh, for the Russians to, yeah, I don't know, to take the whole country. I don't think it's going to happen that they're going to take all the whole country. It's too vast and so on. And it's, it's distributed. It's, it's decentralized. How do you, how do you squash that resistance? It's going to be really hard and expensive. And that's, I think that's a good news. Um, mm. Although it's going to be a lot of tragedy until then, uh, until this resolves, um, in my opinion. Yeah. That's certainly the uh, facts on the ground of technology always matter. And, you know, just like in World War One, again, uh, people didn't expect uh, static lines for three years. They ground each other to dust. But the invention of the machine gun and the rapid fire, uh, small size field artillery uh, had switched the balance from the power of the offense to the power of defense. And, uh, you know, the uh, Franco-Prussian War in 1870, the Prussians just zapped right in, right? Uh, blew right into France. And then in 1940, they did it again. But during that intermediate period, the balance of technologies was such uh, that the defense had a big advantage of the offense. We may actually be in that, and, and this may be sustainable uh, in that uh, the assets, the big, the big military assets, planes, tanks, ships, 
getting ever more expensive. I mean, ridiculous. Some of the American planes are a couple hundred million dollars each. Uh, missiles, uh, inexpensive and getting way better because most of their getting better is in silicon. The Javelin is an amazing device. It's what they call a fire and forget weapon. Uh, you just aim it at the tank, you acquire it, you pull the trigger, and then you go hide, right? It takes a couple seconds for it to get there, but you can go hide before it gets there. You don't have to guide it to the target like earlier generations. And so the uh, Javelins, Stingers, and things that will come later that are even better uh, may actually help a Game B world come into existence. Because, uh, for instance, hey, imagine a proto B that's got uh, 10 stingers and a couple of machine guns, right? Uh, that's going to take a pretty big bunch to, uh, to come and mess with them. And it may well be that a frictional defense everywhere uh, will make aggression really, really hard. And in addition to this ability for a consensus of financial network players to come together and punish an aggressor. So maybe these are things that are part of the gradient that allows us to get to game B. On that hopeful note, <laughs> I think, or is there any, is there any more you want to want to add to to this question, Marco, or you, you seem to be wanting to say something? Or no, 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 I'm fine. No. Um, yeah. So I think it's it's uh, time for a. Uh, um, it was a really, really uh, fruitful conversation. I think it's time to. Uh, wrap it up and maybe a close with a final statement uh each one of us um just uh you know a few sentences uh on what your what your takeaways are or where and um yeah just to round round out the conversation so uh who would start us off well that what i would like to say is that uh obviously i think as as i said before i think we have to change our, our ways because uh, we are in a turning point where, where maybe we can go in the direction of utopia, but uh, I think we are heading in the direction of disaster. So, so we are in, the, in this intersection where we have to make a decision uh, following game A, it will lead us into disaster, uh, going into uh, game B, at least uh, is a more hopeful uh, perspective. And uh, uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, self-organization and all these radical uh, alternatives to the traditional uh, uh, management model. And uh, I would like to say that uh, I would like to change the perspective about how to de we deal with that because uh, uh, most of the people think uh, this self-organization thing is something alien to, to most of the organization. It's something only limited to, to a number of, uh, uh, shall we call it, uh, enlightened organizations or other, uh, we'll call it like crazy organizations, uh, depending on your perspective uh, uh, about that. And I think that's not the case. I mean, uh, for me, self-organization is the default practice of any dynamic system. And uh, in, uh, even in traditional organizations, uh, Self-organization is, 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 the, is the rule, not the exception. So uh, everything in an organization that managers don't or can't control is self-organized from a spontaneous uh, business lunch meeting to an office romance, you know? So uh, everything, uh, most of the things in an organization self-organizes. 
So we are used to self-organize. Otherwise, it would be impossible to work uh, always waiting for a boss telling us what to do, asking permission for every single decision we do. So I would like to end that with this note that probably uh, demystifies de de a bit this topic of uh, self-organization. For me, self-organization is the norm and command and control is the special case. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, thanks um, everybody. Marco, it's good to see you again, Tom. Nice to meet you, Jim. Uh, cool to cross paths with you finally. Um, and thanks, Dennis, for inviting me. Uh, it's been a, a lively discussion, informative for me. Um, I love this topic. I'm passionate about how it changes us as individuals, how we manage ourselves, ourselves by these same principles, um, deepening our awareness of our ability to respond to any given situation like a pandemic or a war, an unwanted war, and then how that moves into our organizational systems, how we as individuals come together to coordinate our effort, and then eventually into self-governing systems, governance itself, that um, just obsoletes the notion of government that can be corrupted by a single individual that just must die. And while I didn't comment directly on the question of Ukraine, that's how it lands for me. We're seeing that which must die. And it's now more brutally apparent in all, all of its um, full color of why it must die. And the response is different this time to Jim's point. Um, same with the pandemic, um, huge suffering for humanity, but it pointed to a different way of responding. And in, in the, the work environment, it changed the notion of how we work and where we work. It became possible to not work in a central office. Um, and so I think we're just on the edge of some changes that a lot of us have been working in and for for a very long time, but they're beginning to spread and catch fire. And I am really hopeful about that. So it was really cool to hang out with you all. Thanks. Awesome. And Jim? Yeah, uh, I was uh, kind of echoing Thomas that uh, We've been thinking about this, been working on this, applying bits and pieces of it in various places where it seemed appropriate and safe to do so. But man, does it feel like the time is right to really start ramping up uh, this transition. Uh, you, know, you know, the pioneering work in things like holacracy provided a lot of learning and experience. The, uh, some of the theory uh, that comes from uh, Game B and from complex systems thinking, the existence of DAOs and the exploration of design space uh, has been phenomenal. Uh, the pandemic, Ukraine, the network response. Wow, it feels like uh, in complexity talk, we talk about the basins of attraction. Uh, or strange attractors, to coin a phrase or steal one. And uh, typically, uh, the way I describe strange attractors is imagine our civilization is a metal salad bowl and the current state of the world is a marble rolling around inside the salad bowl. Uh, now, most of, uh, usually the marble stays in the salad bowl, but every once in a while, big shake occurs. You know, somebody sneezes who's holding the salad bowl and the marble flies out of the bowl and lands in another salad bowl. Uh, that's the uh, transition state, and you can't go back. Once you're out, you're, the probability of coming back to the old bowl is almost zippo. So it's a uh, what they call hysteresis, where a change is irreversible. And so uh, it sure feels to me like the marble's way up the side in terms of our capacity, uh, external events, and of course, uh, more and more people every day see that wall of uh, environmental degradation rushing at us. 
uh, faster and faster. So, man, if this ain't the time, it's going to be too late before much longer. So time to get to work, people. Yeah, yes, it seems like as a true end of history moment, either the actual end of history or the Fukuyama idea that we are reaching a stable state um, through game B that would be an adapted form. So like, like this, this point where we really have to um, do something. I wonder why, uh, I wonder sometimes um, what we can actually do with, you know, the whole liminal web, the whole metamodern game B integral spiral dynamic scene, or if we are just commentators on what's happening on the global scale or what our actual uh, um, circle of influences. But I, I think that's the, that, that we have to find that out, uh, every one of us. And so, Dennis, do you want to close it? Yes. Uh, so, uh, so Wiseman once said, the best way to predict the future is to create it. I think that's, that's what we all came here to, uh, together to do. And so I, I, see, I see it hopeful uh, also, and, and I choose to see it hopeful because it's a choice too. Um, and it's not just, yeah, it's either this, uh, you know, I'm not, not the doomer <laughs> in that sense. Um, I want to look to, to, to the, um, the seeds of the new and, and it's the time between worlds um, uh, as, as Zach Stein calls it, I really like this term feels like a time between worlds or between salad bowls or, or <laughs> however you want to want to see that and something new is coming that this is what we're trying to document this is what we're trying to, to get get the word out and and uh so we're actually doing things right now that the five of us are doing things which is to get the word out and and create it you know nourish that attractor make it visible uh, you know look at the contours of that what is that new thing emerging and we we may fuck up and we will but that's okay as long as we just you know do our best uh, on the way to that new reality to to bring into being so uh thank you all for for coming uh and it was was a fabulous conversation i really enjoyed it and uh, i'd love to see you in this or that other context again and, and i will <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> so thank you very much thank you thank you see you everybody thank bye. you bye 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 bye, -bye.